Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And the next reading is from John 6, starting at verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realised that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. I want to start again with a question, and that is to ask how you deal with fear and anxiety. For, for some of us, that's a constant struggle, um, especially in these times. You know, many of us are worried about uh, our health on infection or worried about climate change, and therefore constantly on edge, constantly ground down by the weight of anxiety or by imagining things that might go wrong, turning them over and over and over in their minds. Uh, if psychiatrists are anything to go by, that kind of fear is on the increase, especially among younger people. Um, of course, it might just be that younger people nowadays are more likely to admit it than people were in the past. But it's a, it's a real challenge to live with. Thank you. Some of us, on the other hand, are not natural warriors. There's quite a few of us in the room who are that way. We're, on the other hand, perhaps just inclined naturally to have cool heads. And when we're tempted to fear, perhaps, we think carefully about all the rational, sensible reasons why we shouldn't be afraid. You know, We're good at working out real risks and odds and working out just how unlikely bad things are to happen. You know, That's not a bad strategy, usually good advice when you can do it. 
But every so often, of course, you do come up against something in life that really does have high risks, or some act of bravery or kindness or some choice to love and serve others that is costly and is, therefore, something that takes a little bit more than just a cool head and appraising risk. It takes a real capacity to face fear. Jesus' disciples in this story learn to face and deal with fear, or rather Jesus teaches them to deal with fear, and not without reason. Um, when we read this story, it's well worth remembering what these men are going to do with the rest of their lives. Once Jesus has risen from the dead, these people will devote their lives to spreading the message about Jesus the Redeemer in the face of the most horrible opposition from governments and from authorities, possibly even more frighteningly from ferocious mobs, rioting mobs. And they will pay for it. You know, the, the book of Acts says that, you know, every one of these men would face a public flogging, beaten in public, shamed, spat on. They would face degrading prisons. They would stand before the courts in chains. One of the men rowing this boat, James, uh, would die at Herod Agrippa's hands only a few years later. And though the Bible doesn't tell us the end of the story, other histories suggest that every single one of these men, bar one, John, the one who wrote this gospel, was in the end put to death for their faith. And John himself at least spent long, hard years in exile on a prison island. And of course it was worth it. You know, those men started something that has never been stopped since that day. They spread the message of Jesus across the ancient world like fire. It was incredible how quickly it spread. But they needed to be brave to do it. And this story teaches us how Jesus taught them that bravery. And it teaches us in the process where our bravery and our capacity to deal with fear needs to come from, at least in part. Now, it's a very familiar story to many of us if you grew up in Sunday school, very, very familiar. But as I've worked on it this week, it has struck me again just how awesome this story is, how awe-inspiring. And I hope that as we look at it together, you will feel a little of that too. Because for John, that is the focus. The, the other Gospels that mention this miracle, Matthew and Mark, they, they've got quite a few more details. You know, how Peter was invited to walk on the water too, things like that. John focuses right in on Jesus. He wants us to see just how amazing this man is in a way that helps us face our fear. So we're going to look at it in two parts. Not dividing the passage up, but rather we're going to go through the story and then think about the implications. So firstly, Jesus reveals himself in power. So Jesus just before this story, has fed the 5,000. It's the most public, the most striking act he has done so far in the gospel. And the people want to come and make him king by force. So he withdraws up a mountain to pray. And meanwhile, he sends the disciples uh, off across the lake to Capernaum, back somewhere where they can get a bed for the night. And they set off. It's a familiar thing to do. Four of them, at least, are fishermen who used to work on the lake. So even though it's getting dark, they head off to sail across the lake. And Jesus, it says, is not with them. But a strong wind blows up and the waters grow rough. Now, that, that's already a fairly 
scary situation, potentially. Uh, the lake is big, and on the Lake of Galilee you get big storms, you know, three-metre waves. There's nothing to be laughed at in a little rowing boat. If you've spent much time by the sea, as I did when I was a kid, you may learn to love it. I certainly did. You may learn to love spending time in it and on it. But you also learn to respect it pretty quickly. There's often a sort of inhuman power to it, isn't there? A power that's far beyond you. And the more you know it, the more you become capable of dealing with it, the more you know it's worthy of a healthy fear. Uh, my kids love the programme Saving Lives at Sea, about the RNLI, going out and rescuing people in, in desperate situations. And the introduction to the current series has an experienced life boatman say, the sea is an unpredictable and a scary place, an unforgiving place. And that's absolutely right. That must have been even more true when you had to face it in a little wooden boat <laughs> and, like the disciples, row across those rough waves. You know, there's no radio, there's no GPS, and there's no RNLI to come out and get you if you're struggling. That's what these men are facing here. But they're capable men. They row solidly three, maybe four miles in the darkness. That's hard work across the rough waves, the buffeting waves and the roaring wind. You just imagine yourself in that situation for a moment. You can see nothing but the boat and glint of white on the waves. You've been straining at the oars for hours, exhausted, splashed, buffeted, weary. The waves are bigger than your boat and you come up and can crash down again every moment. And that is when they see a shape approaching the boat. They see a figure coming across the water towards them. And these fishermen, who by all accounts have been doing reasonably well, now they are terrified. They are truly afraid. Because the sea can be scary, but no one can do this. Someone or something is coming across the waves with no more trouble at all than if they are strolling across their lawn. Treating all the massive power of the sea like a stroll in the park. Again, just imagine yourself back into the darkness and the waves and the spray, seeing that figure just walking across the water. It's terrifying. What kind of power can do that? And then, then Jesus says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, this is one of the points where our translations capture the main thing that's going on, but they do miss a degree of nuance. So when Jesus says, it is I, he's not saying, hey guys, it's me. Um, rather, it's exactly the same words as he uses in other places when he says, I am. You know, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. And then before Abraham was, I am. Every one of those is a big claim. And every one of them echoes the time in the Old Testament when God said the same thing. Because God was speaking to another terrified man, Moses, out of the burning bush, and Moses asked his name, and God said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. It's a strange name, isn't it? I am. You know, most of us are fairly easy to describe. We're tall or small or loud or quiet or thin. 
and we can describe ourselves that way, you know, it's the uh, tall skinny one up on the platform, that sort of thing. Not God. <laughs> He's beyond our description. He is the one who is, who always is, past, present and future, the I am. The rest of us depend on other things. We need food and drink and air. And while we might be right now, we will not always be. One day we will not be, but not God. I am. Jesus walks up and says, I am. Don't be afraid. In other words, don't be afraid because God is here. God is with you. And perhaps then they remembered back to the Old Testament again, where it said in the book of Job about God. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. In other words, when he treats the power of the sea as if it was nothing, he is doing what the Old Testament says only God can do, the same God who made the stars as well as the sea itself. Then, awestruck as they are, these men want Jesus in the boat. They need him back in the boat because he is the one whose power is enough to rescue them. And he brings them to land in a moment. Now that's the story. That's what happened. That's the event that happened. But in the process, Jesus teaches us not to fear because he's teaching the disciples that they don't need to fear. We need to think why Jesus is doing this. It, it seems almost out of character. Most of the miracles we've seen so far, and indeed most of the miracles in all the Gospels, are they're quite subtle. You know, he doesn't make a song and dance about things. He often keeps them very secret. His first miracle in this Gospel we saw was very much a secret to everyone except his disciples. And we forget, knowing Jesus of the Gospels as a miracle worker, we forget how he was genuinely human, how he was weak, how he became tired and hungry like the rest of us. And so that when he does reveal his power, it is in that gentle, compassionate way that people need when they need to be healed. He's no showman. And then he walks across a lake like this. Now, it's still secret. He does it at night, doesn't he? It's in the darkness. Only the disciples see. And at the end of our passage, when the crowds ask him how he got across the lake, he doesn't even answer. He just changes the subject. He's not doing this for fame. But he did need his disciples to see. More than that, he's willing for them to go through a really tough night to see this. You know, they were tired when they got in the boat. It was a long day. You don't feed 5,000 people every day, do you? And then they had a night of roar, rowing through roaring winds and crashing waves. It's not what they had in mind when they set off. And the key is there in verse 20. It is I. Don't be afraid. He's teaching them not to fear, not just for this moment, but for good. He's teaching them what they need to know to deal with their fear. And John, as he writes it down, is teaching us the same. You see, Jesus doesn't just comfort these men. He is a coach to them. He pushes them so they'll grow. Now, I don't know if you've ever done serious sport and had a coach. I used to be a moderately serious track cyclist as a teenager, and I had a coach, and he wasn't gentle. He didn't give me any sympathy when I was tired. I was quite scared at him, of him. Um, you know, when you were doing well, he would, in a race, 
jump up and down and shout encouragements. But at other times, he would jump up and down and shout words I won't repeat here to make me go faster. And it worked, you know. He, I mean, different choice of words might have been good, but he pushed me beyond what I thought I could do. He was growing me. Jesus here is compassionate, but he's growing them in their faith. And he is coaching each of us, too, in our faith, if we are Christians. He pushes us. Sometimes it feels like you are on your own and the night is dark and the waves are rough and that he is very far away. And he doesn't come as quickly as you'd like. You know, have you felt that at times? That's what they felt. But they needed to feel it so that when he turned up over the water, they would realize, yeah, the situation was bad. But you know what? Even that didn't keep him from helping us. Things are about to get tough in John's Gospel for these men. The crowds are about to start abandoning him. The religious leaders are beginning to close in for the kill. The disciples need to know they can depend on this man, whatever happens, absolutely whatever happens. Not just when he's with them and things are going well, not when the crowds are admiring, but in the dark, on their own, far from land, buffeted by the waves and the wind, and when they don't even know he's there, that they can depend on him, whatever happens. And even more than that, they need to know that in order to depend on him, they need to know he is scary in his own right. He's unworldly. He has power that is beyond what they had ever imagined. It's very easy to get, how should I put this, to get used to treating Jesus a little bit like he's a very nice teddy bear. I'm feeling down. I need a hug. When actually he's a little bit more like an eight-foot grizzly bear. You know, still warm and furry, if that's not disrespectful to say. Still a warm hug. But you get in trouble, you want a lion on your side, or a bear, not Paddington. There's a reason the Bible describes him as the lion and the lamb. He has all the tender gentleness of a little lamb, and all the ferocious power of a lion bound into one. If we are to have the bravery to live the way Jesus calls us to live, to face our anxieties and our fears, to live up to his high call on our lives, because it is a high and challenging call. We need to see his awesome power and his majesty. Now, we had Psalm 46 read at the start, because, again, that, that's a psalm that it's the same theme, it's the same idea, it ends with those beautiful words, be still and know that I am God. Wonderful words. But often easy to, re to read those words as if all they meant was take some time in quiet prayer and be aware of God's care for you. Now, I, we could probably all do with doing more of that. That's a wonderful thing. But the rest of the psalm shows people doing this in a situation of apocalyptic disasters. We will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. You know, that's disaster movie territory. It's the comet coming down from the sky. And he says, we will not fear then. Why? Because God is scarier. God is scarier than any scary thing that could come. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. 
He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. This is a God who can offer comfort to the Ukrainians if the Russian tanks roll over their border tomorrow morning. Not just that he can prevent it, and he can, but that even if they come, he is strong enough to put things right in ways we cannot begin to imagine. When we're afraid, it is helpful at times to turn to the comforting, gentle passages of the Bible. You know, we, we sung that version of the Lord's My Shepherd earlier for a reason. It's wonderful. But at times we need to know that this is a God of power we are running to. A God of wonder and of awe. This is the Jesus who can walk straight across the storm's waves to you, as if they were his front lawn. When we know him that way, we can face our fears. As an awed trust in an awesome God helps us face them down. Do you know that God in that way? Let's, let's come and meet him again. He is terrifying and wonderful. Knowing him, knowing his power, is what made these disciples, these fishermen, into people who could face down kings and rulers and prisons and death. Boldly, gladly, because they knew this God. Do we? <laughs>